Okay, it's that time of year again, and have you been itching to get your hands on BHP swag like our buttons and stickers? Well, this December, if you become a yearly member, or if you renew your yearly membership during this month, I'll send you some during our BHP Winter Feast. So you'll get membership extras, like extra episodes and transcripts, you'll get BHP swag sent to your door, and you'll help keep the community free and independent. Because really, this would not be possible without member support. So please, give it a thought. And you can sign up over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Hannah, Andrea, and Don for joining up already. Okay, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 145, The Rise of King Aethelbald of Mercia. All right, as you probably guessed from the title, we're talking about the rise of King Aethelbald today, but only sort of. The thing is that as you get into this episode, you're probably going to notice that we're basically talking about everyone but Aethelbald. And that's because of the way our histories are written. But rest assured, what we're really talking about is how and why Aethelbald was able to form his Mercian hegemony. Okay, so we ended our last episode with the death of King Cholred at a banquet. And he went out swinging. Or, more accurately, gibbering and cursing the heavens. And let's face it, Cholred was a colorful character, and he really brought his A-game right until the end. I mean, you really have to work hard to completely destroy Penda's dynasty. But he pulled it off. And now that he was out of the way, the throne of Mercia was open. Cholred's rival, the man he feared so much that he drove him into exile and tried to have him killed, Aethelbald, was still living in the fens of East Anglia. And despite his less-than-glamorous surroundings, he was making friends, largely through the assistance of St. Guthlac. So bishops, nobles, and various other unnamed individuals in the upper echelons of Mercian and probably East Anglian society were coming to meet this Aetheling that Guthlac favored and King Cholred feared. And although Guthlac had recently died of fever, Aethelbald was still well-positioned to take the throne of Mercia. Now this is something of a spoiler, but I want you to be able to see the forest for the trees here. And the thing I want you to know is that you really cannot overstate how big of a shift in Mercian politics this was. For nearly a century, the line of Penda had dominated Mercian life. But now, the line from Penda's older brother, Eowa, was moving in. Specifically, Eowa's grandson, Aethelbald. And actually, the line of Eowa would prove to be remarkably powerful. While the other heavyweight in England, Northumbria, was continually being rocked by internal conflict and a series of weak kings, Mercia was beginning a period where it would be led for the better part of 80 years under just a couple powerful monarchs who were descended from the line of Eowa, brother of Penda. Under Aethelbald, Mercia would go on to fight the Welsh, the Northumbrians, the West Saxons, control London, act as patron to Kentish churches, stack the Archbishopric of Canterbury with Mercians, or those friendly to Mercia, and of course, the kingdom would also come to dominate the southern English. So yeah, Aethelbald will become a pretty big deal. And Offa, well, if you don't know his name yet, you will come to know it quite well as we go forward. So the line of Eowa wasn't messing around and would actually surpass the reign of Penda and his successors in a stunning number of ways. 
But right now, with Aethelbald living in the Fens, that was anything but clear. Now, part of what made Aethelbald's rise to power easier is the fact that he didn't have to worry much about his northern rival, as Northumbria was racked with internecine conflict. And his other major challenge, the West Saxons, well, they were also experiencing trouble. Now, granted, Wessex was no wallflower, and they have exercised significant influence over southern politics in the past. And King Inna, the current king of Wessex, was an incredibly powerful king in his own right. But the fact of the matter is that Wessex, during the time of Inna, was still unstable and distracted by repeated bouts of internal strife. In fact, rebellion was so bad that during the end of King Cholred of Mercia's reign, so somewhere between 710 and 715, King Inna had to send young Boniface to Canterbury as his envoy, rather than going himself. Why? Well, probably because Inna was needed in the kingdom, and he couldn't take the chance of leaving when things were primed for a possible coup. And Inna was under threat not just from the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy, but there were also issues with the Britons living within Wessex. So he had issues from two different fronts. Now, looking at Inna's law code, it's clear that the Anglo-Saxons were treated better than the British, but the British were included within Wessex laws, and presumably Wessex life. And that does make sense, since the kingdom seems to have had quite a bit of intermarriage right from its early beginnings. I mean, even Inna's predecessor, Cadewalla, has a British name. It's just an anglicized version of Cadwallan. And even Churditch, the founder of their dynasty, appears to have had an anglicized British name. The point that I'm driving at here is that Wessex wasn't entirely Anglo-Saxon. There was also British influence within it. And so there were plenty of directions from which a rebellion could come. And a wise king would try and keep an eye on as much of it as possible. So, rather than going to Canterbury, he stayed behind. And the reason I'm telling you about this stuff is because had King Inna been less distracted by internal conflict, he very well might have dominated the entirety of the South. And it's a sign of the strength of his rule that during the life of Inna, the borders of Wessex held strong, even throughout all this instability. And it was only after his death that Wessex began its precipitous drop. So Wessex had a pretty solid king despite its internal issues. And similarly, Kent, under King Wetred, was quite formidable. In this era, the Eastern Kingdom had managed to break from West Saxon domination and assert its independence. So not only was Kent a financial powerhouse with connections to Frankish Gaul, but it was also proving to be strong enough to push back against one of the major forces in the South. And let's be honest, the Mercia of the early 8th century was not the Mercia of Pendus Day. It had spent years under King Aethelred, largely just consolidating power. And the disastrous rule of King Cholred and the disastrous rule of King Cholred had really created a mess for anyone looking to step into the halls of power. But that didn't dissuade Aethelbald. We aren't given details of how he seized power. In fact, Bede says shockingly little about Aethelbald at all. We don't know if there was a fight, if there were rivals. We know pretty much nothing. But we do know that in about 716, after the death of Cholred, Aethelbald returned to Mercia and became king. Now there is one hint as to what might have happened here. It looks like King Aethelbald of Mercia and King Aethelbald of East Anglia, aren't these names great? 
Well, it looks like the two kings were on good terms for quite some time following Aethelbald taking the throne of Mercia. And because of that, some scholars suggest that an alliance with East Anglia might have been the cornerstone of Aethelbald's ascendancy, and that does make a degree of sense. He might have needed some serious backing before he could just roll into Mercia. However, an alliance with East Anglia could only help King Aethelbald so much, given the fact that he was likely to be checked early on in his reign by both Witchred of Kent and Inna of Wessex. They were two kings of the older generation, and were unlikely to bend to this new Mercian king. And think about this. Getting the help of East Anglia might have helped put Aethelbald on the throne, but when was the last time that East Anglia did anything major in a military sense following the death of Raidwald? I mean, they really didn't present a strong military front that would gain the respect of their warlike neighbors, so I just find it unlikely that their support would have had much of an impact upon the views of King Wittred of Kent and King Inna of Wessex. So, at least for now, it seems that Mercia was pretty well boxed in, regardless of what Aethelbald did. But it was still making advances. For example, London was coming firmly under Mercian control, and was detaching from Essex. When we look at the records, Aethelred, Chenred, and Cholred all exercised power there. And now it was Aethelbald's turn. And it seems that he really made his mark on the city, because after Aethelbald, there isn't any indication of East Saxon control of the city. So that's how Aethelbald started out. But, despite the initial obstacles, pathways to power were opening up. Wessex, which was initially a power block that slowed any Mercian growth, despite the fact that it was too internally chaotic to make any serious attempts at conquest itself, was starting to look like it was in serious trouble. And trouble that would last for years. See, to begin with, we hear of King Inna killing an Aethling named Chinnawulf in 721. Now, it isn't clear what Inna's relationship with Chinnawulf was, but considering that he was an Aethling, meaning that he was a scion of a noble family, he was probably some sort of threat, or possibly even the head of a West Saxon insurgency. Now, King Inna did triumph and kill the Aethling, but this does not speak well of his standing in West Saxon life. He very well could have felt under siege, or at the very least, in serious threat. And then, in the following year, things got even weirder for Inna. See, at some point during his reign, King Inna had expended the manpower and capital to build up Taunton. And then, in 722, we're told that his wife, Queen Aethelbur, demolished Taunton. And that's pretty serious. Now, first off, I hope that after knocking down the wall, she said, and I thought it smelled bad on the outside. But second, that's a really cheeky move by Queen Aethelbur. King Inna, her husband, goes to the trouble of building up Taunton, and then she just comes along and destroys it? I think we've all seen relationships that were, how shall I say this, explosive? But to destroy a fortified settlement, well, that seems like it went well beyond the pale, even for the most passionate of couples. So, why did this happen? What's going on in Inna's kingdom? Well, the records aren't clear, but Kirby suggests that this might have been due to continuing political crises occurring within Wessex. The reason Kirby suspects that is because immediately following that event, we're told that Aildbert the Aetheling was exiled, and he went to Surrey in Sussex. So within a couple years, we have Inna killing one Aetheling, exiling another, 
and then a stronghold is demolished by his pissed-off queen. And to complicate matters, Kirby suspects that Aildbert, the exiled Aethling, might have been Inna's son, or maybe his nephew, and he might have been seeking recognition as the heir to Wessex. But Inna was having none of it. That certainly would create quite a bit of stress in the royal family, and that could explain why Aethelbert came along and knocked down his fancy new fortified settlement. So, things are not looking that great for Inna. And the other thing that's interesting is the fact that Aildbert the Aetheling was able to find refuge in Surrey and Sussex. And that suggests that they were breaking off from West Saxon control. That's bad. So things were collapsing fast for Inna. Which was really good news for King Aethelbald of Mercia. Between the crises in Northumbria and Wessex, two of the major checks on his power were crumbling. And the last major power that could challenge Mercia was Kent. And actually, they weren't doing very well either. King Wichred of Kent was old school, but he was also just old. And in 725, he died, leaving the kingdom to his heirs, Aethelbert, Aidbert, and Ulric. Aethelbert was now King Aethelbert II of Kent, and he became the king of Eastern Kent. Aidbert became king of Western Kent, and Alric, well, he could just wait and hope that someone got sick and died before producing any heirs. Alric really didn't get much of anything. But the important thing to note here is that Kent was no longer consolidated. Rather, it was broken up and weak. And now, it couldn't provide any sort of serious challenge to King Aethelbald and his Mercian warriors. Actually, 725 that year when Wichred died, was a really good year in general for King Aethelbald, because it was on that same year that we're told that Inna fought against the South Saxons, and he killed Aildbert the Aetheling, that same Aetheling that he exiled several years earlier. Now this invasion is a complicated one, because on the one hand, it's clear that Inna was powerful enough to marshal his warbands and invade the South Saxons. And not only did he invade, but he successfully defeated them, and killed his target. So that does seem like it's an indication of Inna's strength. However, we can look at it from a different direction. Aildbert was fighting with the support of the South Saxons, which shows that Sussex definitely had broken off from Wessex, and it was asserting its independence. Not only that, but this invasion was a big risk for King Inna. I mean, marching into a neighboring kingdom simply to kill an Aetheling? What if it went bad? What if he died? It's a big risk. And this suggests to me that Inna knew that there was a growing movement against his rule, and that Aildbert might have had support within Wessex, much like Aethelbald had supporters within Mercia even when he was in exile. So this might have been less of a show of strength, and more of a move of desperation to eliminate a figurehead around which his enemies could unify and enact a coup. Further, if you take into account the possibility that Aildbert could have been Inna's son, you really start to get a sense of what a mess West Saxon dynastic politics might have been during this era. I mean, think about that. If he had to go and invade a foreign kingdom to kill his own son, things are not going well for the royal family of Wessex. And here's how bad it was getting. Inna is often referred to as the most powerful West Saxon king in the 8th century. Wessex was not doing well, and it wasn't going to get any better for quite some time. 
Then in the following year, so 726, we're told that King Inna abdicated his throne to his kinsman, Aethelherd, and then scampered off to Rome. What we're told is that he had chosen to leave the kingdom to younger men. Considering that in the years before his abdication, he had killed at least two Aethelings that we know of, I wonder if there was a cultural shift occurring within the borders of Wessex, and the younger generation were discontent with the way King Inna and his inner circle had been ruling. Whatever the case, much like Caedwalla before him, King Inna chose to leave the throne and make his way to Rome. And there, it's thought he might have founded the Scala Saxonum, though it is also argued that Offa of Mercia might have founded it, so who knows. But whatever the case, we have two things happening here. First, Wessex is getting even worse. And second, it does look like the English were beginning to make their mark on the holy city. But possibly at the detriment of their own territory, because really, once Inna left Wessex, things got a little rowdy. The thing is, that while he had chosen to make Aethelherd the king of Wessex, not everyone agreed. One particular Aetheling, a man named Oswald, who claimed to be a descendant of King Chalin of Wessex, thought that he should have been selected, not Aethelherd. And he wasn't alone in this opinion. So naturally, civil war followed. This was great news for King Aethelbald of Mercia. He came into his throne after a complete nutter had managed to wreck the stability of his kingdom, not to mention their relationship with their church and their neighbors. And in the ten years following his ascension, he's been hard at work just trying to solidify his borders and stabilize his kingdom. Meanwhile, he must have been all too aware of how exposed his kingdom was, with Northumbria, Wessex, and Kent all commanding enough power to annex portions of Mercian lands if they wanted to. Yet, as luck would have it, Northumbria was racked with internal conflict, and was actually just trying to hold it together after dealing with their own version of Joffrey Baratheon. And the powerful King of Kent had died and fractured his kingdom. And then you have Wessex, which was on the brink of civil war, or just an outright civil war, for much of the decade where Mercia was rebuilding. It really is astounding luck, and it allowed Mercia to continue to exercise power over London which gave it a tremendous amount of wealth. And now, in the warlike southern kingdom of Wessex, King Inna had left, and the armies of Wessex were just beating each other up rather than doing anything about Mercia. Christmas really came early for Aethelbald, and he really wasn't wasting any time. While all this chaos was raging in the south, Mercia was gaining in power. And the efforts made during this period would pay off dividends in the future. For example, the last ruler of the Megan Seta would be gone by 740, and he would be replaced by a mere Ealdorman. And elsewhere, where the territories still had their rulers, they were nothing more than sub-kings, and we see Mercian monarchs coming in and granting land as if it was theirs. Because it basically was. Moreover, the good news kept rolling in for King Aethelbald of Mercia, because we're told that in 729, King Osric of Northumbria died, and Cholwulf took the throne. And transfers of power are always times of anxiety, especially in the north, so Mercia was probably breathing a sigh of relief, knowing that their northern neighbor was probably lacking the energy and manpower to realistically challenge Mercian power. Now one interesting side note is that the new King Cholwulf of Northumbria was the same Cholwulf that Bede dedicated his ecclesiastical history to. 
So when Bede was having kittens over how unstable and dire the future of Northumbria looked, it was during this period in time. Again, this is all good news for King Aethelbald of Mercia. And during all this chaos, Mercia finally tried her hand at interkingdom influence. As you know, Wessex had been dealing with civil war since 726, thanks in large part to King Inna abdicating and Aethelherd and Oswald disagreeing on who should have the throne. Well, now that things in Mercia were well established, it was the perfect time for Aethelbald to stretch his legs, so to speak. So we're told that Mercia offered to support King Aethelherd of Wessex. That's an interesting move. If you asked me to guess which side Mercia would come down on, I would have said the insurgency under Oswald. After all, what better way to exert influence than to back the underdog and overthrow the man who was chosen by King Inna himself? But no, Aethelbald sided with Aethelherd. I guess Aethels have to stick together. And it appears that it was specifically the support of Mercia that allowed him to triumph and kill his rival, Oswald of Wessex. But Mercian support came with a cost. And both Aethelherd and his brother Cuthred were now subject to Mercia, meaning that Wessex was now a subkingdom of Mercia. Obviously, this was incredibly advantageous for Aethelbald. Further, the subkingdom of Wessex was only getting weaker. From here to 802, Wessex would pass to five different kings whose connection to Churditch wasn't very clear. And during much of this period, Wessex was little more than just an outlying Mercian province. So, one rival down. And within five years of this event, Kent would join them. It seems that splitting up Kent into two separate kingdoms really didn't position them well when Mercia had just gobbled up Wessex. So, two rivals down. Meanwhile, in 731, King Cholwulf of Northumbria fell victim to a coup. Bede really was right about the north. It was getting out of control. And the deposed King Cholwulf was forced to enter monkhood. The euphemism was that he was, quote, forcibly tonsured, end quote. So Brother Cholwulf, formerly King Cholwulf, had to enter the monastery at Lindisfarne. But it didn't last long, because he was soon brought out of the monastery by his supporters, and he retook the throne, and presumably regrew his hair. The fact that he was able to make a comeback is good, but it doesn't speak well of the state of Northumbria. I mean, look at what happened there. We just had an incredible swing of power. We had a king who was weak enough to be tonsured, and then the rebel insurgents were weak enough that they were quickly overthrown and the king was reinstated, which suggests that there wasn't a single powerful monarch or a single powerful movement, or even really a single powerful family in Northumbria. But rather, much like Bede tells us, there were multiple families all warring for the top position in the kingdom. Strangely, even with all his kinslaying and bloodthirst, things were just better under Oswiu. But he was long dead, and things in Northumbria were a mess. So, there you have it. All three major rivals of Mercia were now either hamstrung with internal issues, or they were outright subject to Mercia. Knowing that, it shouldn't surprise you, writing in 731, that Bede tells us that all the provinces south of the Humber were under Mercian control. And it seems that Aethelbald knew this too. Because in his charters, he emphasized his power by describing himself as Rex Britanniae. 
While the term has fallen out of favor, it's pretty clear that he was basically a Brett Walda. And here's how powerful he was. On that same year, 731, Tatwina, a Middle Anglian priest who was under Aethelbald's umbrella, was elected to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. He wasn't just dominating the kingdoms in the south. He was also influencing control over the church. And it seems that Aethelbald and Mercia managed to do this largely because they didn't fall apart when everybody else seems to have. But it really is surprising, isn't it? Aethelbald took the throne in 716, and we didn't hear much about him for over a decade. But here we are, 15 years later, and he's controlling the south. He's powerful enough that he's almost certainly placing friendly clergy on the Archbishopric of Canterbury, and he's styling himself as the King of Britain. Not too shabby. And honestly, it really does seem like he was the king of at least the southern English at this period. For example, in 733, we're told that King Aethelherd of Wessex lost the territory of Somerton to King Aethelbald of Mercia. So Mercia was expanding. And after that event, Aethelbald became the direct ruler of a large portion of Wessex beyond Selwood. So Wessex was being annexed. Not only that, but as part of his show of strength, King Aethelbald of Mercia had King Aethelherd of Wessex as well as his brother Cuthred witness the grants of land. He didn't just take the land, he made them agree to it. Mercia was now dominant, and Wessex couldn't even secure the territory along the Thames. I mean, King Aethelbald was so powerful in Berkshire that he was able to hand over land to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. And even the monks of Abingdon saw King Aethelbald as their protector. I think it's pretty clear when you look at the record and you put everything together that we are now thoroughly in the era of Aethelbald. But that didn't come without its own challenges. And those of you who are in the Facebook community likely know what some of those challenges were. Our new king of southern England had a bit of a filthy habit. And you'll hear about that on Monday in the next episode King Aethelbald, a whirlpool of perdition. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all of it. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. 